and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Abbott Vascular is a division of Abbott and is a global leader in cardiac and vascular care. Today we have Dr. Richard Raposa, who is the Divisional Vice President of R&D, New Technologies and Therapy Innovation at Abbott Vascular, here to talk to us about recent advances in vascular care. To start off, Dr. Raposa, what are the current clinical challenges in the vascular care area? Well, stents have done really well for patients uh, for many years. Uh, there's been an evolution in that technology from metallic stents onto uh, drug-eluting metallic stents. And they're fairly efficacious at actually um, achieving better dimensions of the lumen and reestablishing blood flow when you have a stenosis. One thing that we have not been so successful at is measuring the effect on the patient himself or herself. So in other words, if you have a stenosis, you're experiencing angina. How well did we do at eliminating that angina in in, in an acute sense and at follow-up? So we're now looking at ways in which we can bring some rigor to that area clinically and see how having a different construct of the product with a different mode of action could improve that outcome. Can you talk to us a little bit about the advances that have been made from open surgery to minimally invasive procedures? There's still a place for open surgery in very complex disease, and it's actually practiced quite widely uh, around the world, especially in the U.S. Surgery is still um, implemented in many cases where there's just so much disease in the patient that really you don't want to put in 10, 20 stents in one patient. It is still done uh, through the surgical means. And the results are great, you know, but uh, the initial trauma from the surgery is quite severe. So many people opt for stenting devices. And uh, so it's evolved quite a bit into treating younger patients who do not want to go through the surgical procedure, treating simpler lesions. And in some cases, in some centers where high volume and good expertise exists, they go for very uh, complex disease but with certain criteria in mind. So there's criteria that societies have put forward as to who really goes to surgery, who really goes to stenting. By now we've matured enough to have well-defined criteria that people tend to follow. And so I would say there's a ratio of maybe two to three times as many stents as surgical procedures done, but there's still many surgical procedures Mm -hmm. done in the U.S. So could you provide some background on how vascular care was managed using non-degradable stents? Even in the U.S. now, there's no uh, degradable stents approved, so there's all metallic stents. And the patients are generally managed, uh, no, they go through your general practitioner. Once you start developing heart disease, you start going to a clinical cardiologist who manages you mostly through medication and who tries to maybe implement some habit changes, uh, you know, nutrition, exercise, dieting, etc., controlling blood pressure, controlling arrhythmias, if there are any, etc., etc. So medication-based therapy. Along with that, if there is progression of the disease, in many cases there is regression, and in some cases there's progression. And if the disease gets severe enough, or the symptomatology gets to a point where it's uh, severe enough, then you end up being referred for um, imaging such as, you know, angiography. And if in the angiography and after following certain guidelines they see that there's 
X percent stenosis or higher with certain symptoms that are predefined, then you're a candidate for stenting. Then you get your stent, one or two, I think is 1.3 per patient in general average. And then after that, you go on a fairly rigorous antiplatelet therapy. So typically aspirin plus another agent that's much more potent. And that's necessary because you're introducing foreign materials into the vasculature we are talking about small arterial systems in the coronaries that are you know, in the two and a half, two millimeters up to four millimeters in diameter. So shear rates are high, platelets tend to be activated if there's foreign material and there's not a smooth lumen to flow by. So you do need to control platelet activity quite a bit. Past a certain time period, the danger of uh, having an acute thrombosis or subacute thrombosis goes down and then patients are generally taken off depending on the hospital, depending on the practice, depending on your clinical cardiologist, some people just don't want to take you off of uh, dual antiplatelet therapy and you're on it permanently, only discontinued during, um, if you want to have another procedure. And some doctors are perfectly comfortable discontinuing it after six months. So there's that aspect of having to be on that anticoagulation therapy that is uh, bothersome with metallic And there's also the aspect of Okay, you are introducing a metallic permanent scaffold in the vasculature that is pretty much dictating in perpetuity what the diameter is going to be. And part of the arterial function in patients, or in humans, let's put it this way, yeah. uh, is that it adapts to changing environments. So if you're building plaque, for example, due to disease or age or whatever, the artery actually compensates for it by becoming bigger to accommodate for the encroachment from plaque. That's uh, what's called Glagovian remodeling. And you impede that if you put in rebar, essentially. You're solidifying the vessel into a certain diameter and cannot grow from that. And actually, if it grew, it would detach from the stent and would cause problems. Yeah. On the other hand, part of the function of arterial systems is to respond to demand. So if you suddenly have to run you uh, will increase the flow rate in your heart. That will increase the shear rate. The endothelium signals to the smooth muscle behind it to grow, and it'll grow suddenly another 5 to 10% diameter on emergencies. That's you know, coronary flow reserve that you cannot access if you fix the diameter of the vessel in, in a permanent that way. So with a resorbing scaffold, after the scaffold that becomes, you don't have to resorb it all the way, by the way. You can just have a resorbing scaffold that obtains a certain point where it's now structurally discontinuous, but not yet gone. From that point on, you could either remodel the vessel and have the vessel grow to adapt to the, to the conditions of flow, or have a sudden growth in diameter that's allowed because you're not, no longer constraining the vessel with that structure. So that's uh, how, how we expect the changes uh, at a local cell wall that will, will manifest themselves. We're hoping that this is all hypothesis, of course, and the trials are on their way to prove it, but we're hoping that that will translate to actual symptom changes so that when people who have had scaffolds a year later, they can chase their grandchildren or they can move furniture around and not have um, angina. Can you now go deeper into um, that and talk about the advances using bioresorbal? vascular scaffolds and walk us through how they work, their tissue regeneration capacity, their advantages, and current clinical applications. Great. They, they tend to, you know, we went through a great extent 
uh, frankly, to make the devices look and feel as, and smell like a stent. We wanted these devices to be implantable with no change in, in uh, procedural uh, practice, uh, really to have minimal differentiation against stents when it comes to the process on how to put them in. Because otherwise, you know, our customer base would have to be trained extensively and that could cause problems. So from that extent, they're very similar to stents and how they go in. You, you know, you make a puncture in the groin, you put them in, uh, they you know, get to the point of, uh, of uh, where the lesion is. Oftentimes, we do require that you pre-dilate the lesion to make sure that you have a good assessment as to what the pliability of the lesion is. You don't want the surprise very calcific lesion that will not expand and then you're stuck with the product half deployed. Mm. So you want to be uh, sure that when you get there it'll expand. So we, we require in many complex cases or even in simpler cases, pre-dilation of the lesion with a simple balloon is always good. Then you put the device in, very much like a regular stent. Um, then you get out and you assess how much diameter improvement you had. And we are fairly adamant that you have to have get to within 10% of what the diameter should be for that location in the anatomy. So if you're in the mid LED, that LED should really be 3 to 3.5 millimeters in the proximal to mid segments. And you should be achieving that. And you can measure the proximal non-diseased artery. You can measure that with a geography, and you can mm -hmm. measure where the lesion was. And if you haven't gotten to within 10% of that diameter, you need to keep going and pushing it further. Then, so they sometimes they reinsert a balloon to make it go bigger, and then finish it off. Anti-plasmic therapy gets put in place, and then you're done. So then, the minute the scaffold sees water, it starts degrading. So now you have a molecular weight that's declining with time. This is a polymeric scaffold degradable material. And when it gets to a certain point in that molecular weight degradation curve, there will be a loss of structure, but not yet loss of mass. So degradation is different than mass loss. You can lose molecular mm. weight, but you don't necessarily disappear yet until you get to a second threshold molecular weight in which molecules are now small enough that they can actually migrate. And we found that uh, from analysis that um, oligomers, small molecules of uh, polylactic acid that migrate out will be attacked by water in, in, in uh, free media outside of the immediate area of the artery and then immediately degrade, immediately within minutes to an hour degrade to monomer units, which essentially monomer units for this polymer is lactic acid. And that lactic acid is a form of energy in the body. It gets stored through, a, it goes through an active shuttle into the mitochondrium and uh, it gets stored as pyruvic acid. And that reaction is reversible if you need to have energy or is recyclable through the Krebs cycle. So really, if you, tr if you were to, for example, radio label the polymer, to follow it through completely, you will end up following it all the way to the Krebs cycle and it will turn into water and seal. Hmm. So it, it eventually disappears. It takes about three years for it completely to be gone from the artery. But like I said, within a year, it becomes discontinuous, so you can start recovering function, and then at three years, the mass is really gone. Before I go on to this next question, I was hoping you could also mention it hasn't yet been approved yet in, in the U.S. What are your hopes and aspirations? We're making great progress in the U.S. We uh, completed enrollment in what's called Absorb 3, which is the pivotal trial for the U.S. 
and now patients are undergoing follow-up. The endpoint in that trial is non-inferiority to metallic stents at one year. You would wonder why non-inferiority. Uh, remember I told you that this device remains pretty much like a stent for about a year, mm -hmm. right? It's contiguous, it's still jailing the artery or caging the artery because it has continuity of structure. It hasn't disappeared. Once it breaks up, then you can expect the results to start differentiating themselves from metallic. So we have another trial that uses these first patients in Absorb 3, it's called Absorb 4, very creative. Uh, so from <laughs> Absorb 3 to Absorb 4, we add another, another 3,000 patients for a total of 5,000 patients. And in that trial, the endpoint is actually superiority in clinical outcomes beyond three years. So we're gonna be looking at this, for example, looking at this analysis and either landmarking it or looking at the, at the full uh, Kaplan-Meier curve to see when exactly do the curves diverge from one another. Metallic is the control arm and uh, absorb by a resorbable scaffold is the uh, test arm. And they should, after two or three years, the curve should start differentiating. We powered the trial to show the differentiation and to actually see if it's superiority uh, statistically. And uh, we've also added an endpoint to that second trial, Absorb 4, to look at all patients and at one year show that the scaffold has been able to uh, relieve and sustain the relief of angina in a superior manner to that of metallic stents. Mm. We're really uh, looking forward to that data because I think it'll be, uh, that pivotal data will be really transformational for the interventional cardiology field. And it all reverts back to for the first time now having this uh, regenerative medicine aspect to the product where you put something in that actually enables the creation of new tissue within the same organ that recovers functionality and that functionality can actually work towards relieving patient symptoms. Yeah. As opposed to with metallic stents when you increase the diameter and then you hope for the best. Because there really isn't any ability for that tissue to regenerate into anything else. You're just wishing to preserve the lumen that you created long term. And that's a great segue into this next question. So looking into the future, what advances do you envision for the field? Well, the mode of action is completely different for this device, right? So you're envisioning now a transformation, and we hope to be the first to do this in the field, a transformation in clinical trial technique mm -hmm. so that we can perfect these endpoints. You know, half the trick to all these drugs and devices is knowing what you're looking for and how to measure it and yes. coming up with things that actually matter to the patient that differentiate themselves statistically. So that's one of the major advances I think that we're contributing is reinventing the way we do clinical trials and actually putting patients at the center of the endpoint as opposed to dimensional measurements or or any other you know, more esoteric measurement that really doesn't talk about how the patient feels. That's one thing. Another is, it becomes really, when you think about it, a, a mesh or a structure through which you can deliver any drug you want. As long as you know what you're trying to deliver to what organ, we could, doesn't have to be a cylinder either. We can mm. make sheets, we can make umbrellas, we can make um, cylinders, or you can make blobs of any kind and put them in any, any cavity so that we can do a dual, sometimes a dual function, sometimes is, for example, in this application, the opening of the vessel, so there's a mechanical action that's immediate, 
and then the sustaining of the effect through biology as opposed to any other application where maybe you're just delivering the drug and maximizing the contact area because these devices can be can vary in, in amount of surface area so you can optimize the surface area and contact area against the tissue you're trying to affect. So it's a platform that enables us to, enables us to expand to other vasculature yeah. or even to other anatomies uh, in general that with either different drugs or with different constructs. The degradation times are completely adjustable with chemistry, so that's possible as well. The physical properties are completely adjustable with processing, so that's also a possibility. So it opens a lot of doors, definitely. Great. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners, what would you like them to take away from this podcast? The efficacy of uh, interventional therapy with stents is very good already. Stents are doing great in the field, but questioning the way things done and can we do things differently is always a part of who we are and a part of uh, this, uh, this field. And uh, here we are trying to change it completely, and I think it may have a very, very good effect in terms of how these products work. So the options are coming, uh, it's not approved in the U.S., it's not something that uh, we, we promote at all in the U.S. other than within the scientific type of discussion and content. But, but there is uh, hope in the amount of investment in the clinical trials that we have to say, we may get some differentiation from stents in very different ways that we didn't think of before and that are patient-centric. So hopefully that becomes truth. Everything I've said, of course, is hypothesis at this point until those trials are complete. But it may be that uh, we get something out of this. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.